Hi, my name's Lloyd. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Pete's. And uh, let me add my welcome to you uh, for attending our online service today. We're continuing on in a series um, in Luke, and uh, we're gonna be reading from um, a passage in Luke, which we just had read. And uh, it's a beautiful little scene um, that brings with it uh, characters that we're gonna look at today. We're gonna look at three uh, particular things. And the characters in our scene, the surprising actor, and then look at our role in the wider drama. So three main ideas. The characters in our scene, the surprising actor, and our role in the drama. So firstly, the characters in our scene. The scene is short, but kind of brimming with delight. You'll have noticed in the ways that we're preaching these uh, stories and characters, how Luke is kind of weaving and intertwining all that's going on. There's more movements than, than a, a, a series of This Is Us. Here we see two angelic announcements, two miraculous conceptions, and two mothers who come together like streams explicitly to one flowing purpose of God. All these things come together in, in this story. Now let's look at Mary first. She's been given the craziest news of her life. We saw that last week as Preston preached. And it's amazing news, but also news with huge consequences. She's told that she has found favor with God, but it doesn't mean that she will win a lottery, but rather she will give birth to a son despite being a virgin. And that that son will be the son of God, the son of the most high, and he'd be a king whose kingdom would have no end. Mary's thinking, okay. She was also told your relative in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is a six month of her who was called barren. And so we come to our passage then, and verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. She goes with haste. It's quite a long journey from Nazareth to Judah, likely 80 to 100 miles, a three or four days travel. But she heads straight there. It's with haste, we read. Where was she, I wonder, on the spectrum of doubt and of faith? It must have been a little bit, at least a little bit, up and down. Was she determined to respond to God's leading with doggedness and determination to do that straight away? No procrastination. Was she going with joy because joy shared as joy doubled? Was she scared of the response in her hometown Nazareth and needing to get out of town for a while? Or was she needing community, someone, anyone to talk through all that she'd been through and had been revealed to her? Or was she looking to confirm what the angel had said, thinking if, if Elizabeth really is pregnant, then maybe that will confirm that I really will be pregnant too. Whatever it is, she heads straight to Zechariah and Elizabeth's place. She enters stage left. She greets Elizabeth and Zechariah, probably wonders what's up with Zechariah. Why is he being so moody today? We would have expected to at least get her to get her shoes off and her jacket off before sharing her news, but no. Immediately, Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary and she bursts. Bursts with excitement, with exclamation, a loud cry, an impromptu song of praise. The baby inside of her, we are told, leaped in her womb like a lamb skipping and frolicking. John makes Elizabeth's song become a dance. Elderly Elizabeth, 
pregnant with John, overflows with blessing, praise, excitement and joy. John, in fact, seems to kick off this joy. Mary, a maiden, arrives with news she had to share of a new baby she was to bear. These are the main characters in this scene. Elizabeth then says, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. How does Elizabeth know? We're not told that Mary told her. How on earth does she know? Well, she was filled with the Holy Spirit, we are told. We have obvious characters in this scene, but there's also a surprising actor, and that's our second idea. God himself is written into our scene. The triune God is involved here. The baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb. We've been told in verse one, uh, in chapter one, verse 15, that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit, even in his mother Elizabeth's womb. He would prepare the way of the Lord. And so he does, even at this early stage, he's preparing the way. As he is filled with the Holy Spirit, so his infectious joy moves his mother, who is then filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then reveals to her more than she knows. And she prophesies and praises God for her cousin and who is in her womb. Remember, and take note that, that Luke is a doctor we heard a few weeks ago. So we'd know more than most that in the sixth month, it was not uncommon for babies to, to kick inside the womb. But he is adamant that this was something supernatural, something holy. He wouldn't have written these things lightly. And so notice with me how remarkably Trinitarian Elizabeth's praise is. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit, we're told. And you might also see that there are two mentions of the Lord in our passage. She speaks of the mother of my Lord, um, who is in front of her in verse 43. And then she says how blessed the mother of her Lord is, who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord in verse 45. Two Lords. So was Mary spoken to by the embryo in her womb, or is there another Lord? It reminds us of Jesus later on in, in Matthew as he's, grown up, speaking to the Pharisees, speaking of Psalm 110 in Matthew 22. Now, now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put the enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. There before Elizabeth in Mary was Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Son of the Most High, one who would sit on the throne of David for all time. Admittedly, in literally embryonic form, but even as a clump of cells, he was shaking things up. He was bringing a party. 
how often we turn away from God in fear and in shame when to allow him near is to allow him to bring the party. How I need to remember that repent is not Jesus saying stop that, but him saying, come to me, I'm here, I have come to you. We should remember that although Luke is the human author here, there is a divine author too, to this scene, to the wider story, in fact. And the wonderful thing is this, that the author writes himself into this story. He becomes the surprising actor, creator comes into creation. God becomes man. No, more than that, God becomes an embryo, an embryonic baby. Think about that. It's crazy. It's astounding. You wouldn't make this kind of thing up. And there are implications to this. Here's one. In one of his talks he gave at Oxford University, um, Tim Keller tells the story of author Dorothy Sayers. He says this, Sayers was one of the first women to go to Oxford University and she was a writer of detective fiction. She wrote a series of great stories and novels called the Lord Peter Ramsey uh, Whimsy Stories. Lord Peter was an aristocratic detective, single and alone, and in the middle of the series, a tall, not particularly attractive woman named Harriet Vane appears in the stories. Harriet is one of the first women to go to Oxford, and she is a writer of detective fiction. She and Peter fall in love, get married and solve mysteries together. Isn't it romantic? What's going on there? Some people speculated that Dorothy Sayers looked into the world she created and into the character she created and saw his pain, saw his loneliness, fell in love with him and wrote herself into the story just to save him. God, you see, has done quite the same thing, Keller continues. God looked into our world, the world he made and saw us destroying ourselves and the world by turning away from him. It filled his heart with pain. He loved us. He saw us struggling to extricate ourselves from the traps and misery we created for ourselves and he wrote himself in. Jesus Christ, the God-man, born in a manger, born to Mary, born to die on a cross for us. Behold who Jesus is, how he loves you and how he came to put the world right. End quote. He is the surprising actor. God writes himself into the drama because he loves you and he came to put the world right. You see, the big uh, picture story of the Bible has elements of a drama. Recently, a couple of prominent Christian theologians have tried to get us, normal, everyday, paying members of the audience, to refuse to see the Bible as a dead book, but a living drama, as a story to which we've been invited to enter into. They split the Bible narrative into five different acts, like in a play. They suggest that we are in a particular act and we are invited to perform and to participate. N.T. Wright says the Bible is in five, five acts, creation, fall, Israel, Christ, and the church. And because we are in the final act as the church, he suggests that we are not just to parrot what has already been said, but we must live into and discover the conclusion to the drama. So he suggests that we improvise. I love the idea of, of improvisation as, as part of the Christian life, although improvisation always reminds me of Michael Scott in the office, who at every improv session would just get his gun out and be shooting everyone and ruin the whole scene. 
we're called to something creative, something live, uh, something that we're involved in. Create, um, Kevin Van Hooser is similar. Um, he describes his take on the acts of this big play in slightly different ways. He calls it creation, choosing of Israel, Christ, church, and then consummation. Don't, don't, don't worry if you don't get all of these. The main point um, I will come to he suggests that the church does not have to work out the ending so much as live in the light of the ending that has already been written. So act five is the end and we're living in act four. The essential thing for us then is to play the right act. That means the church is no longer an act two under the law, nor an act three doing the work of Christ, nor is it an act five like the new heavens and the new earth are here already. No, the church is in act four a time in between the first and second comings of Christ, marked by the Spirit given at Pentecost, but not yet at the end. And so both of these, with different nuances, tell us that we have a role to play in this drama. We are in a choose-your-own-adventure series, if you like. You know those books where um, if you choose um, option A, uh, you go to page 32 and then the story continues. Or if you choose option B, then you go to, to um, page 76. Whether it is improvisation or not, um, we are certainly called to participation. We are actors and actresses in this great drama. Small, perhaps, but real. We are joining God in the renewal of all things, a renewal that will fully come in the future. That act has been written, act five has been written, but we are invited now to participate as the church, as those commissioned at Pentecost. And so we are invited to participate and be present and act in this drama, this great drama that we've been called into. So how are we to be actors and actresses in this? What is our role in the drama? Well, it's not to make things up ourselves not to have to figure out where things are going, not to rewrite the story that has already been written. No, we enter the story with the spirit of the great author. To improvise like jazz musicians, to know the arc and to be creative with all we've got. We know what's gone before and we, we know um, we've been told what's gonna happen at the end. We're to have faith that that's gonna happen in the end. And so our challenge, if we choose to accept it, is to go for it, to go for it. In our passage, we have the first experience of the incarnate Jesus. Our passage is one of the first scenes of that crucial, crucial, irrepeatable, irreplaceable act. Jesus turns up, but not in power, not on a throne, not riding on a horse, but in the womb of a teenage girl. He comes for the first time and look what happens. Songs, dancing, prophecy, shouting, joy. The promise is that he comes again in the future and that's the final act to finally make things right. But now, how are we to act? What is our role in this? And this is our final point. In the meantime, we are to allow Jesus Christ to draw near to us. Just as Jesus in Mary's womb comes to Elizabeth and to John, we are to allow Jesus to draw near to us by his spirit. His spirit has been poured out on all flesh, all kinds of people with no class system, no distinction. All people um, are able to receive the spirit and the spirit fills us, equips us, sends us out, moves through us, dwells in us. 
And as we trust in Christ, he gives us this empowering presence, the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, Jesus says of the Holy Spirit to his disciples, you know him for he dwells in you and will be in you. So let me go off on a sidebar for a moment. I want to speak of this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you don't fancy a bit of a theological diversion, you can switch off for a moment. I'll let you know when to come back in and and to join us. I want to speak of this filling uh, with the Holy Spirit and what that means. So let me plagiarise from an essay I wrote that I probably plagiarised from someone else um, a few years ago. There are three main categories which relate to people being filled with or full of the Holy Spirit. The first is normative, for an equipping for the everyday Christian life. It is a characteristic of every Christian. This is an ongoing condition and refers predominantly to exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit and a life under the Spirit. The second is particular and indicates an endowment for a particular ministry or office. This is what usually happens in the Old Testament or what happened before Pentecost. So, for example, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb, we read earlier in Luke. The third is occasional and refers to a special influx of ability and power in the service of the kingdom on distinct occasions. These relate to empowerment for an immediate task, particularly in an emergency, for example. Elizabeth and Zechariah's prophetic songs are examples of this. So we have three ways in which the Holy Spirit fills people. The normative, the particular, and the occasional. The particular is what is happening with John, who is filled to be in a special position, a prophet preparing the way of the Lord. The occasional is what's going on with Elizabeth, who is filled as she is given revelation to prophesy about Jesus and Mary. And those are the particular and occasional fillings of the Holy Spirit that we see in our story today, in our passage today. But that other filling is relevant for us as we seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit today. That's the normative or normal everyday way in which the Spirit works in us as Christians. So come back now and join us, those who went off for a little break. Thank you for your patience. Do come back with us now. The the summary is this. The Spirit works in different ways. To equip for a role or office, to empower for supernatural moments, or to, um, to be in the normal everyday lives of Christians. But it's the same Spirit. The same Spirit who empowered John to leap for joy and equip him for his role. The same Spirit who empowered Elizabeth to prophesy and that gave her supernatural revelation. The same Spirit who allowed Elizabeth to give thanks and see blessing all around her. There's one place in the New Testament where we are told to be filled with the Spirit. It's Ephesians 5 verse 18. Be filled with the Spirit. It's a command to us as we live in this particular act that we find ourselves in, the now and the not yet, we notice um, what this command means for us just by reading um, what comes after this command. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul calls the Ephesian church to be filled with the Spirit. 
but not to impress their mates with impressive signs, miraculous signs, no. Notice how mundane and ordinary that list is. Addressing each other with spiritual songs, singing praises to God in your heart, giving thanks for everything and submitting to others out of reverence for Christ. This must be one of the most unglamorous lists in Paul's letters. Late on in my sermon preparation, I realised that this reminds me of someone. This list reminds me of someone. Elizabeth. She literally does all these things. She addresses Mary in a spiritual song. She praises God. She gives thanks for all that's going on. And she submits to Mary out of reverence for who is in Mary, Christ. This elderly lady of noble birth submits to her unmarried teenage cousin with no hint of resentment or arrogance. She's doing all these things. She's filled with Holy Spirit, not just in that occasional way, but in the normative way it seems here. The Holy Spirit can fill us to miraculous and impressive things. He can do that. And we believe that he, he does, but he certainly does fill us to do very mundane and ordinary things. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit who grows in us the fruit of joy, of humility, of gratitude. How amazingly unglamorous is that? So what's the challenge for us today? We can ask to be filled by the spirit, to see blessing, not just in the extraordinary, but in the ordinary. That's how we're to play our role in this big, impressive drama. We are to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us in, this, in these unimpressive ways. Let me focus on gratitude. That's one of the things um, that, that Elizabeth demonstrates, but also that's in that uh, Ephesians verse. Gratitude is good for you folks. There's no doubt about it. It's in books. I've read some of them. Um, it's even in Alistair's book, Rhythms for Life, sold wherever good books are sold. He says this, gratitude isn't a suggestion, it's a key instrument in the melody of God's ways. I wonder if that's the first time your book has been quoted, Alistair. If so, then I've nailed it. There have been studies done on gratitude. A study group were divided into two groups. One group would write down once a week five things that they were grateful for. The other group wrote down once a week five random things. The first group were found after uh, six weeks to be 25% happier. That's quite, quite a jump. Robert Emmons, a researcher, says this. People who experience gratitude can cope more effectively with everyday stress, show increased resilience in the face of trauma-induced stress, recover more quickly from illness and enjoy more robust physical health. Many of these effects are quantifiable. People are 25% happier if they keep gratitude journals, sleep one half hour more in the evening, and exercise 33% more each week compared to persons who are not keeping these journals. Experiencing gratitude leads to increased feelings of connectedness, improved relationship, and even um, altruism. We have also found that when people experience gratitude, they feel more loving, more forgiving, and closer to God. It just makes sense. How to make friends and influence people? Well, don't be a grumpy, ungrateful person. Don't be that person who's on the plane and who complains about the patchy Wi-Fi. You're literally sitting in a comfy chair, flying through the sky in a tin can, and Wi-Fi is getting beamed in from some satellite in space. Get a grip, don't complain. But there's more to that. 
it's not just being ungrateful, it's also not just being grateful for things, for stuff, that things happen, that good stuff has happened to you. That's gratitude on one level, being grateful for things, and let's celebrate that. But what if there's another level? Gratitude for those things that come from a good giver, that moves our gratitude from the gifts to the giver himself. That raises the stakes more, doesn't it? It intensifies what's going on in us. That this good giver loves you, gives himself to you, knows what he's doing and has written himself into the grand story so you'd know how to live in your role in that story. That this generous creator loves you, comes to you, knows what he's doing and has come into creation so that you'd know how to see blessing in the extraordinary but more so in the ordinary that even the ordinary world is charged with the grandeur of God because of his coming, because of his creation, because he has dignified it by his coming. And the Spirit gives us spider senses uh, to see this grandeur. We can ask then to be filled by the Spirit to see blessing in the extraordinary, but more so in the, the ordinary. As we seek to be filled by the Spirit, may we see that with surprising regularity in the New Testament, spiritual power is connected with giving thanks. What can you notice today, I wonder? What about the extraordinary big picture of the good news of Jesus coming and coming again do you need to be extraordinarily grateful for today? Slow down, perhaps, and, and savour that. What about the ordinary that's right under your nose, in your fingertips, in the smell of your nose? Do you need to be filled by the Spirit to see as blessing and gift today? Because it's also a practice. It needs cultivating. So perhaps it's a gratitude journal. Perhaps it's a gratitude jar that we have that you put little notes in every Friday and you read once a year. Perhaps it's giving thanks before a meal or during a meal. The other day I was eating a salad and it was beautiful and lovely. And I, my mind went back to when salads used to be pieces of iceberg lettuce that was slightly browning along with these kind of massive um, salad tomatoes that were kind of flavourless. I gave thanks for how salads have upped their game. Focusing on something and digging deep into the cost and sacrifice that went into a simple thing, that's a good practice like a running tap. Think how many people's thought and engineering over the years went into that drop that comes to you as you just turn this, this tap. How many people dug and installed pipes over the years to bring it to your home? How that water was in the sky and in the, the ecosystem and now is in your glass. Reflecting on something and other ways to reflect on something or some things that you're thankful for Sensing it in your body and then focusing on that sensation so that it becomes a grateful flow in you. Which of those things might you be able to do today? So I wonder how might you ask the Holy Spirit, God himself, to fill you that you see blessing in extraordinary but ordinary ways as well. Holy Spirit, Fill us to see blessing in the extraordinary, but more so in the ordinary, so that our lives are attentive to the big and small things, so that we become grateful people, so that we are actors and actresses in this big drama of history, 
as those who see blessing, who bless others and are deeply grateful at your blessings. May you work that in our lives, Holy Spirit. May we be people who live in this story as those who bless others, who are a blessing and who see blessing in, in all things. Amen.